Hello, and welcome to another edition of In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, and I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Randall Jacobs, where each week we talk about the latest in gravel tech and how gravel's fitting into our lives. The Gravel Ride podcast is brought to you by a select group of sponsors, but also by your own contributions. I've set up a site at buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride where you can contribute if you like what we're doing. I'm definitely trying to add as much value as I can to your gravel cycling life, and I'm hoping that you'll be able to support me in return, just mainly to pay for the overhead of what we're doing and perhaps keeping me flush in disc brake pads, which I seem to be going through in an ever-increasing rate. I've put up a few new perks at buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride, particularly if you're in Marin County. I've captured some amazing routes that I'd love for you to download. And a few other things. If you're looking for personal advice about your gravel bike setup, I'm here for you, and I'd love to create an ongoing relationship with you. So on this week's episode, Randall and I talk about a couple different categories of bikes based on some listener mail we received. We use the Cannondale Topstone Sora, which is around a $1,200 bike, as a jumping off point to talk about gravel bike upgrades and what you might look to do if you have a few extra dollars to throw into that model. We also look at another bike from a company called Land Yachts, the AB1. If you're looking to spend $2,000 to $2,200 range, there's some significant upgrades that you get from that first bike that we wanted to talk about and juxtapose one to the other. We also talk about how gravel cycling scratches an itch in our lives and what to do when that itch can't be scratched on the bike. So I hope you enjoy the episode. And with that, let's dive right in. Randall, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing okay. There's a lot going on. So uh, it's an it's a interesting, interesting time to be, to be doing a podcast for sure uh, and having conversations in public. I'm bummed that we we were supposed to get together and do a socially distant but actually in each other's presence recording, but that's not happening today. Yeah, it's uh it's hard with scheduling and I know you're dealing with uh you know, you have your son at home and and you're trying to educate him and doing this whole remote schooling thing. So that's that's quite a challenge. Yeah, it's nuts and then to have the smoke from the fires just impact our ability to be outside was just another thing. I was thinking it's just, it doesn't make sense for us to be face to face right now. Yeah, it's definitely a feeling of being cooped up. So for, for listeners who not, aren't in the Bay Area, uh, we still have the California wildfires happening uh, as we're recording this. And so air quality in San Francisco and in Marin and throughout the Bay Area is, is anywhere from um, bad to, you know, hazardous. Uh, and uh, so it's just not, you know, all that uh, sensible to be out on a bike at the moment, not to mention we're in a pandemic and, and various other things that uh, just add a, a degree of, uh, of tension to one's day-to-day existence. Yeah, I've been learning about these fires and just understanding that kind of the smoldering that's happening where the, they feel like they have got it under control, but these things are just going to smolder. And if the wind blows, it means that the smoke is going to come many, many miles away from where the fires actually happen, which is definitely what we're experiencing in Mill Valley in San Francisco. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a reminder that there are, 
there are consequences to uh, what we what our civilization does and all of these like, you know, we, we've been controlling forests and not in, allowing them to burn for quite some time. Uh, and so we end up with these very big fires uh, whenever there's some some sort of event engine with climate change and things like this that adds an additional propensity for fires to be big. Uh, so, you know, it's definitely a time for for considering uh, one's footprint in the world and uh, where we're going as a culture. Yeah, absolutely. But in the meantime, I've been I've had a lot of gratitude about all the email messages and Facebook messages and Instagram messages that have come out of our last couple conversations. It's been super cool. Yeah. And, and, and I'll just say, like, you and I were talking earlier about how this was an experiment, this idea of like, yeah, we're going to talk about tech and yeah, we're going to talk about, um, you know, the gravel world. But really, there's something deeper that we want to tap into, which is this, uh, this exis- the, the experiential and the philosophical elements of, of this activity that we do. Like, why is it that we, that we ride bicycles? What are we hoping to achieve? And how do we use this as a vehicle for kind of elevating the human experience? Yeah, yeah. Some of the messages, I mean, we're just talking about, one, riding solo and how it, we, need, we all need to give ourselves permission, especially now, to enjoy that solitude and that meditative act of going out there and and spinning our wheels we had one listener talk to me about how he's painting a bicycle so he's stripping it down and listening to the podcast and kind of realizing that you know just that that action of lovingly preparing the bike for paint has been meditative for him which i think is awesome and makes total sense yeah yeah i shared with him a disastrous attempt I made at, at stripping down a bike when I was in my twenties. And it just, the end result was just this raw metal machine, which it was a trials bike. So it, it sort of fit the build, but I was encouraging him to kind of see it through. And I know the tools are there now for, for people to do, um, you know, home painting projects and be successful. Whereas I totally failed, which it was a, it was a fun memory looking back at that. Yeah. Well, it definitely takes a, I mean, to do a good job on a custom paint job takes a degree of uh, not just vision, but like the skill and execution. It's actually a topic that, um, you know, we, you know, we have our new um, uh, Slack group within our community and, uh, you know, we have, we have some artists in there and they're, you know, he was talking about like, you know, he wants to design his own bike. Uh, He wants, you know, he's suggesting that maybe we have a program where we can pair riders with artists to do this sort of custom thing. Uh, And I actually, it, got really excited about it because there's this uh, expressive element that is missing from, say, like a generic off-the-shelf bike, including ours, where we have, uh, it's not generic in terms of fit, but like we have several colors. So being able to, to do something very personalized like that um, adds a, a degree of uh, intention and love into it that is uh, uh, something something to ponder for sure as I consider what, what I want to offer in the future. Yeah, it was certainly a special journey for me to do and pick a custom paint job for my bike, my thesis. Um, and it was fun. I'd sort of agonized over it, as you know. I mean, I, I couldn't have been further on different ends of the spectrum. I think I went from sort of a battleship gray all the way over to my Lego inspired pink that I ended up selecting. So it was, it was quite fun. And I, you know, I've been stoked because I can't tell you how many people stop me and just ask about the paint job. And it, it just brings a smile to my face talking about it. Well, there's some, uh, some things that I, that I'm working on. One I'm excited about is, uh, the idea of doing a, a bike in a like custom vaporwave colorway, which is like, think like psychedelic California summer sunset. 
Uh, and you know, there's just starting to get out of the, the, the headspace of like only focusing on, on the business and the machine and things like this, but viewing it as like a vehicle for expression, like starting to make art, which is something new to me. Um, I've, I've always been much more practical, much more engineering, uh, physics nerd sort of guy. Uh, so now, you know, you, you mentioned like people doing their own custom, uh, custom paint jobs. Like, uh, it's actually something I've been considering, quite a bit like how do i want to express myself with this machine beyond the actual pedaling yeah i mean i almost consider it like a welcome message as i'm riding out there on the trails to say ask me about it and that was that was purposeful you know i wanted to be able to say hey look for the guy on the on the light pink bike out there and have people recognize me and it's been it's been great for the podcast cuz you know as the listener knows i want to have these conversations and i love when I'm out on the trail, when people yell at me or shout me out or at an event, when those come back, it just, it brings me a lot of joy. So I appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, speaking, speaking of the feedback, we, we agreed and I have established a Facebook group forum where we can house some of the questions that are coming back. Please feel free to use whatever mechanism feels right to you. But the reason we selected Facebook as the location of our forum was simply because it they provide a lot of tools. A lot of people have Facebook accounts. Um, and it's just a place where questions can be asked and answered and retained. So over time, as a community, we're going to get this wealth of conversation that people can access over time. So I invite all you listeners to find the forum on Facebook. Just search the Gravel Ride podcast, maybe say forum afterwards, and you'll find that group. And um, yeah, we're inviting everybody to join us over there. Yeah, and it's actually, uh, it's a great tool because it allows people to get engaged with each other and not just with us. And plus, uh, you had mentioned that you're starting to see more inbounds than you can uh, than you can handle, which is a wonderful problem to have and really is a, a testament to, to what you're building. So, uh, you know, outstanding job there. And thank you to everyone who is kind of resonating with uh, the conversations being had here. Yeah, big shout out to everybody who's written me thus far. I did want to use one email that I got as a jumping off point for kind of the tech side of our conversation, if you will, this week. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. Yes, I got an email from John who's riding out of the Washington, D.C. area, which was my old stomping ground. So I always get a kick out of talking to people um, based out of D.C. And he was talking about how he bought a kind of entry level Cannondale's Topstone, the Sora model. It's about a $1,250 bike. And he was asking about upgrades for that bike and how to sort of make it his own and make it the bike he was looking for. And I thought that was a good jumping off point of conversation because, you know, I hate to call $1,200 entry level because that's still a hefty amount of money. But in the grand spectrum of, of gravel bikes, it, you know, it's in the, on more on the entry level side. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that model and answer John's question about kind of what areas will we look at to modify or upgrade that bike and then talk about that next jump up and, and what you get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, you know, there definitely is a place of diminished returns in terms of uh, spending money on a machine like this. But, um, you know, on the entry level, you tend to get uh, substantial returns to investment, right? Um, but let's talk about this machine here. So for anyone who doesn't know, it's, you know, Topstone Sora. It's a Shimano Sora group, uh, two by nine speed. It's got mechanical disc brakes, aluminum frame, uh, carbon fork with an aluminum steer. Uh, you know, pretty, pretty standard, like solid basic bike. And the, 
you know, on the one hand, like this is a great machine for getting started. Um, if either you're budget constrained or you uh, are not sure how serious you're going to get into it. So it's kind of like your first stepping stone. Definitely not a bad machine at all. Um, the challenges would be as soon as you start thinking about upgrades, the upgrades that make economic sense uh, are fairly limited. Like it's mechanical brakes. So hydraulic disc brakes would be a, a big upgrade. Um, but that is a lot cheaper to do upfront when you buy the machine. So if you're looking at a new machine, like if you got the budget, get hydraulic disc brakes, that's going to be a big uh, improvement. Uh, in terms of this machine here, uh, the if the rims are tubeless compatible, um, if you have a bicycle that has tubeless compatible rims, the first thing you should be doing is, is swapping to tubeless. Uh, and if your tires are not tubeless compatible, use the opportunity to fit the highest volume tires that will probably fit in your frame and really get the most in terms of the capability of the machine, being able to run lower pressures without the risk of pinch flatting, uh, the rolling resistance will be better, rad quality be better, and so on. Uh, so those are the things that you can kind of do. You know, t- The tubeless conversion is something that is, uh, is a no-brainer. Everybody should do it if they can. Uh, other things. Uh, if you haven't, you know, someone buying a machine like this, oftentimes maybe they haven't been introduced to, uh, you know, shoes and clipless, uh, clipless pedals, which is a poorly named system. There's, you clip in. Um, it actually comes from the old toe clips where you used to strap a, uh, a strap around your foot so you couldn't get out, which, the, you know, the bad old days. But anyways, they're called clipless. Really just think of them as clip-in pedals. Uh, and so, you know, if you haven't made that step yet, getting yourself a good kind of mid-level carbon-soled mountain bike shoe or gravel shoe and uh, pairing it with, say, like a Shimano M520, which is their entry-level lollipop-style clip-in pedal. Um, And those are cheap and bomb-proof. They last forever. Uh, And that would be another substantial upgrade that you can make to the machine that would uh, transfer over to any future machine that you would get as well, which is nice. Yeah, those are good thoughts. You know, I think about personalizing gravel bikes a lot because I do think the the chassis that you tend to buy allows for a lot of possibilities as we've talked about before in terms of tire selection etc so going tubeless if that's an option or even just exploring after maybe you've spent some time on the stock wheel tire combination exploring what the type of riding you're looking to do would benefit from. So as you said, going a wider tire is typically something that people can enjoy and really change the personality of the bike. And then there's little things, again, if you're, if your riding is screaming, Hey, I'm doing more technical riding, consider a dropper post and something like that. That's something you can add to the bike. You can bring it to the next bike you buy down the line. Um, and it can really change the personality of the bike. Yeah, a dropper post can be interesting. Um, I would say that if, on a bike like this, if you're getting into dropper post territory, like you'd probably want hydraulic disc brakes first because the sort of terrain that you would ride with the dropper post, you'd want the big brakes too. Um, but but a dropper is definitely a significant upgrade. I think the last thing I would throw out there would be um, you know bike fit because a bike fit is another thing that again like you're building this cyborg, right? This this you know m- you know um, an interface between a machine and a human. And ideally that this is this like, you know, you become one with the machine and a bicycle fit, uh, especially if, if you're just getting into the sport, uh, will teach you a lot about how you should fit properly to the bike. And those dimensions, those fit dimensions would also transfer to any future bike that you would get. Um, and so it's not uh, money that's being thrown into this that, that, that doesn't transfer forward. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it, it, it's a great point that you take that with you. I mean, I took measurements with me that I had 20 years ago that I've carried forward and they've changed over time because your body does change and your flexibility changes over time. So it's good to revisit a fit, 
but it's absolutely, I think, both insightful as to how your bike is fitting you currently and can be game-changing when modifications are made to really dial it in, dial in that fit. Yeah, in fact, um, we love it when when folks like you know come to us and they have like their fit dimensions already because then we can just like plug them into a CAD program and be able to you know essentially graft those onto you know whatever machine it is that they they want to build for themselves. Yeah. Um, so that's easy to do, and it makes it so your next choice is also much more informed because you had some expert guidance on like what is the right fit for you. You'd be amazed. Well, you, you wouldn't be amazed, but I. I see people with saddles that are too high, that are several inches too low, that are, you know, they have uh, arrow bars on there pointing towards the sky. Like you see all sorts of stuff that um, some basic guidance from a professional would help to avoid and really create that nice interface between your body and the machine. Yeah. And when I was looking at this category of bikes, I was also looking at it from another listener, my buddy Jason out in Kansas, who's riding the Specialized Diverge. I think it's the base E5, very similar bike to this Topstone Sora. And I was curious sort of what that next level up is. So I started to look around the $2,000 to $2,500 range. And I came across a Canadian company who's got, it's Land Yachts, and they've got Mm -hmm. the AB1 model. And I thought that was an interesting one to look at, just to kind of juxtapose the two and look at what you get when you hop up to that two thousand dollar price point so for me kind of the big ones that you know you're seemingly to get obviously there's an upgrade in the grupo in the wheel set um carbon frame i think at that point but the hydraulic disc brakes that you referenced earlier it seems like around that 2k price point is where you start to get into the hydraulic discs yeah, not not the carbon frame. This one is an aluminum frame with a carbon fork. My bad. Uh, yeah. But definitely the hydro disc brakes. And in terms of the group set, uh, so this one is is um, entry level SRAM hydraulic. It's their Apex group. And um, you know we like I I like Rival because the rear derailleur is a little bit nicer. The tolerance is a tighter and so on. Uh, the crank is a bit lighter. Though we use it, we don't use SRAM's cranks on our 11 speed bikes. But in terms of the group set, like the incremental gains you get from here are much less than the incremental gains you got, say, from that top stone we just discussed up to this level. We're, we're talking wide range, one by drivetrain. Um, you know, this one's running 1142 to save money. You could put 1146 on there on the same freehub body, get more range. Um, it's clutched, so the chain's not going to be slapping around. You know, the crank isn't the lightest, but who cares? Like, you're getting a 2K bike, focus on the experience. Those grams are not going to have a, a material difference versus something. Something like, you know, having uh, nice tubeless tires that are ready to go, having hydraulic brakes, um, and having just uh, overall nicer fit and finish. Now, where the you know where you see some compromise, and again, this is true kind of across the board at these price points, is still like you know, the rear hub is is often the biggest one that I look at uh, because you know traditional Paul based designs. Uh, don't have the same like peak load strength and durability uh and you know uh the the, you can have a situation where only one paul engages uh, instead of all three at once and that's how they tend to to fail so the failure modes for that rear hub is 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 not great but that's that's pretty standard at this price point you really want to get into like a i'm a big fan of dt for this reason because they just last forever uh, the DT350, you know, Star Ratchet type hubs, they're just very bomb-proof, but, but you spend for them for sure. Yeah, and I've always thought, and this goes back to when I was working in bike shops in college, it's just cycling is a journey, and we all start out with 
lower price point bikes and try to find the right spot for us to aspire to. And I think, you know, having worked in the industry at some point in my life, at one point I sort of over rotated and I sort of felt like, oh, because I've been a cyclist for so long, I have to have a Durace equipped road bike. And the reality is like, I think for me, like the Ultegra level bike is great. Like I can, the 105 level bike is outstanding. Probably. Um, yeah, yeah. It's actually pretty much the same stuff. Um, I can say for, with SRAM, um, I'm pretty sure the internals for, um, apex rival and force and potentially even in red in their 11 speed stuff, the internals are the same. Like we're talking master cylinders, the shift mechanism, the things that actually matter in terms of how it performs are the same. And what's different is like materials and finishes that are mostly about grams and bling factor. Um, and those dollars are much better spent elsewhere on the bike. Uh, absolutely. I, I don't even ride carbon levers because it's like 46 grams and way more money. And I, I buy stuff at OEM costs. So, you know, that that's an indicator for sure. Yeah. And there's a certain amount for me. It's like, well, if you have the resources and it gives you pleasure, go for it. Like it is all sure. about loving what you're on. But I think the takeaway is, you know, ride what you can afford, but ride for the pleasure of riding. Focus on getting out there and enjoying the sport, not agonizing that the guy next to you has a more expensive bicycle. Yeah. I mean, so I, I'll share a, a brief story about uh, how I got into the sport. Uh, I was a, an outside linebacker and a fullback, and I broke my foot second game of my senior year. So, you know, nobody's calling me to play college, which is probably a good thing because it's not good for your brain. And, uh, you know, I had a $200 Costco bike, and I just started riding it. It was the first thing I could do. And I ended up replacing all the parts on that bike as they failed, uh, you know, a couple bottom brackets, axles, things like this. And then I bought a, a Jameis Dragon uh, steel hardtail frame. This is back in like 2000 and uh, actually 98 maybe. And uh, swapping all the parts over and then, and then just like one by one turning that into a race machine with all these parts I had, I had brought over from a, a $200 Costco bike. And um, that is the expensive way to do it. It was definitely an education. Um, but, you know, general rule is if, you, if you're starting with an entry level bike and there's more than a couple of things that you need to upgrade to make it, you know, almost get to where you want to be. Uh, it's oftentimes cheaper uh, to just you know sell that bike, tune up that bike, sell that bike, and then buy the one that comes stock with uh, the you know the level of componentry that you want for the experience you're after because it's it, it is a systems approach. Yeah, I look at some of these bikes, and even that that Cannondale, I would say, is probably higher quality than the road bike I started out with by far. Oh, I started off on a 1974 Peugeot. <laughs> I raced my first uh, collegiate crit on that machine. It was, uh, it was terrifying. My first proper road bike that I bought was a giant K-Dex. And I remember uh-huh. I could easily make the rear end of that thing touch the tire when I got out of the saddle to sprint. Mm, nice. Early carbon, nice. right? <laughs> Excellent. Well, Transitioning over to the kind of other side of our conversation, I, I guess what's been getting me this week is life, smoke, everything has conspired against me getting out on my bike, and it's really bummed me out. And I'm, I'm curious if you have any other tools for scratching the itch when you can't ride. Ooh, um, I, I run, uh, and so running is something I can, I can knock out, you know, 45 minutes, an hour of intensity, um, 
but you know when when condition when smoke conditions are as they are right now like that's kind of off the table uh doing some basic body resistance workout so uh you know some yoga poses uh push-ups pull-ups some ab work some lunges things like this and you don't need any equipment for this at all uh, so there are lots of, uh, you know, you can find all sorts of, you know, basic routines that give you a pretty good uh, overall body workout. Uh, and, I, you know, I'll do that every other day for 20 minutes or so. Um, in terms of the, like, there's no substitute for going out uh, and, like, getting a proper effort in. And uh, I'm definitely chomping at the bit for that as well, uh, thinking, like, okay, when a condition's going to be good uh, so that I can get out and do that two, three hour, you know, intensity ride that really gives me that catharsis uh, experience. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of funny how different it feels just exercising versus going for a proper ride. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then the other side is like, you know, keeping, keeping mental balance, keeping emotional balance. Which, you know, uh, I mentioned in our last conversation, like the, the bicycle is one of my first tools for that, right? Really enjoying spending time with myself, um, being able to like quiet, quiet the voices that are saying, you know, oh, you know, things are going poorly or, or whatever anxieties there are. Uh, so, you know, the, my recently, you know, my nascent mindfulness practice has been the other kind of tool that I've been using to, uh, well, to go, instead of trying to cope with, uh, you know, the feelings of, of being cooped up, uh, instead also, you know, trying to like connect, uh, to something deeper, which is like the, you know, the, the deeper self, uh, and, and the security and, and that comes from that. Yeah. Being a, uh, a West coaster, I feel like I've lost some of the skills that I might've had on the East coast You know, on the East coast, when we had cycling seasons, cyclists actually used to do other things. <laughs> and, and now being in the Bay Area, like I don't have to think about it. We've got generally great ri- riding weather all year round. And I, you know, m- probably much to my physical chagrin, I've become just someone who likes to ride his bike and not do much else save hiking. Yeah. Well, you're in the right place for it. Fortunately, you can just walk out your door. Uh, but um, yeah, the, and the other element is, um, you know, we talked about riding solo. Uh, group rides. I miss group rides. I think a lot of us miss group rides. Like we did this group ride together um, just before the the uh, quarantine uh, happened, where we had you know thirty, forty. I, I can't recall quite how many people come out, and it was just such a joyous little you know romp through um, you know through Marin around Mount Tam, where mountain biking got its start, and just the the connection that you have with someone when you sit with them on a ride, and then being on a group ride where you're meeting different people uh, and having different conversations is very fluid. Uh, it's hard to recreate in the digital realm. <laughs> yeah, it really is, and definitely something I've been missing. It's I know in a few parts of the country, there's a couple events that are trying to go off. I know, I believe Unpaved in Pennsylvania is doing kind of a individual time trial type experience for their event, and they're definitely following local guidelines for COVID safety. They've assured everybody about that. It's just a tricky proposition. I, I definitely want to get back to it, but uh, the same token, as you know, I'm I'm not calling out group rides right now. I'm not trying to bring our community together just because I feel a little bit responsible and and not sure how to best protect you know the the people we care about. Yeah, yeah. It's um, 
It is a it is a particular period in human history where we don't have all the old ways of kind of uh, interacting with each other and, and dealing with ourselves. And so we have to that actually might be something that I would describe as a difficult positive. Uh, certainly in in my case, and I've, I've observed this with a lot of friends, um, actually, when the pandemic first happened in China, I was speaking with my my friends over there and uh, they said like, you know, I'd ask, like, how is it going? You know, we've been quarantined for, they've been quarantined for a month or so. And they said, actually, this interesting thing is happening where um, I have time for quiet. I have time for myself. I have time to, you know, I'm having conversations that I haven't had before uh, because there is this, there is this uh, necessity. I can't just, um, you know, go to the bar. I can't just do my usual routines. I can't, you know, I don't have these things available. And so now it's, it's uh, and, and we're having this, this common shared experience of going through this, this very historic uh, period where so much is up in the air, so much is uncertain. Our culture is, is very much in flux. Uh, so I, I would say that that's a, um, a difficult, uh, a very difficult thing, but on the, on the same token, hopefully something where, you know, we all get some work done that uh, makes us uh, more resilient and, uh, you know, uh, improves our culture going forward. Yeah, I'm trying to be present in the discomfort I feel in any given week about mm-hmm. the new life that I'm leading, but I also have recognized high points of what I've been able to explore and achieve, whether it be my family or by myself during this period. So, you know, we got to take each day as an opportunity to learn and grow and know that the bike is there for us and events and groups will be there for us again. We just need to look forward to that future. Yeah. Well, look forward to that future. Um, but not losing, losing track of the now and trying to stay, trying to stay present. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good note to end on this week, my friend. It was good to chat with you as always. Yeah. Likewise, looking forward to uh, the next conversation. So that's it for another edition of In the Dirt. I want to thank you for spending some time with us this week and remind you to join up that Facebook forum that we mentioned early on in the broadcast. We'd love to have your feedback and have an ongoing discussion about the various areas of gravel cycling that we discuss every few weeks. I think the easiest way to get you there is just ask you to search for the Gravel Ride podcast on Facebook and you should get there pretty efficiently. I love the increasing amount of feedback we've been getting every week, and I apologize if I haven't gotten back to you if you sent an email. I've been a little buried with some personal stuff this week. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, ratings and reviews are critically important to our growth, so I super appreciate those. And I do read all your comments in the reviews, so it's awesome to get feedback in that way as well. So until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. 